0: Welcome to the Profitable Farmer podcast, where we share stories and tips to help you run a better farming business and create your very own freedom farm. If you're looking to work smarter and not harder in your farm business, welcome, you're in the right place. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome again to Profitable Farmer. I always just get so excited in the lead up to these conversations. Um, one of the things that I love about this podcast is the opportunity to interview old friends and also to share some stories and to glean some insights from people who many of you may not know that sort of fly under the radar. Um, often very humble folk who. Um, are quite incredible in their own way. So I'm delighted to introduce you in this podcast to Stephen Murchison, who I first met back in 2009. He then came on board as a client with me in 2010. So 13 years ago, Stephen was a business coaching client of mine, and I think back then had three businesses. Um, over the last thirteen years, just speaking with Stephen before this conversation, he shared with me that over that time, he's open and opened and opened and built and bought and sold over twenty-two companies. Um, he's bought ten, he's opened eleven, he's created one merge or one partnership. And as a young entrepreneur and highly successful business person, I just think. Um, like so many of the other conversations I'm lucky enough to have on this podcast, there's just so many lessons and insights. So sit back and enjoy this as Stephen and I shoot the breeze and have a bit of a reflection on his entrepreneurial journey in and out of agriculture over the last 20 plus years. Stephen, welcome. Great to have you as part of Profitable Farmer. Thanks, Jeremy. It's great to be here. How are you, mates? And um, we haven't connected necessarily too much recently, but we used to. Um, how are you and how's the family? Uh, the family's good. So um, my wife's actually just been away for four and a
1: half weeks with work overseas. So we've had a bit busy family at home um, while she's been away and uh, just juggling the, the normal juggle of life and business and and family. So it's good. So.
0: Perfect, Stephen. Yeah. You know, a little bit of an intro there as to what we will touch on more what you have achieved over the last sort of 20 years in your business career. But just before we do, how do you reflect on on where you've arrived to when you sit and, and look at what you've achieved um, and, um, you know, how bright your future is? How do you reflect on, on where you're arriving to as a, a business family?
1: Uh. I think I could summarize that by saying that often you can over overachieve in 10 years and what looks like uh, a daunting impossible adventure uh, in one or two years is actually possible over 10 and I think that that would be a summary for for me and my family is that um, we started off with something small and we've been very persistent and we've just kept we've just kept trying to be consistent and kept trying to do the best we can to grow the business we have and um, yeah, do that with other people. So um, yeah, not what I do isn't easy and um, yeah, lots of people don't choose to do what I do.
0: So how do you describe what you do, Stephen? As I understand it now, you've got over 10 businesses running concurrently and over 150 people that you employ as part of those businesses, as well as a real interest in agriculture. How do you describe what you do? I know you're very humble and quite private around this, but how how do you describe um where you've arrived to and what you you've run presently?
1: Um so so I describe that we predominantly run customer service businesses. So we run a series of hospitality businesses and gym businesses across three states in Australia. So that's been Victoria, uh, New South Wales and the ACT. And I guess um, our jo- what we've aimed to create is a business that we focus on our customer service and focus on building teams of people. And, and by doing that, uh, building that team, we can grow our business both um, now, both internally and also growing in terms of numbers and locations uh, externally as well. So I guess we've tried to spend sort of 10 years developing a system that works and um, now I'm just continuing to replicate that. So I think that that would be sort of a summary of what what I do. So.
0: And if we go back 13 years, where were you back then when I first met you? I think you had three businesses at that point. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, we did. I think we had, yeah, two and just getting the third. Um, and I met you... Um, through, through a St George business coaching um, series we were doing at the time and I, I literally came and, and just heard and heard you speak and then we came I came on board as a client and um, that was actually a really difficult time for me actually Jeremy personally because I had to be really accountable. So I just remember that every time I spoke with you I had to be accountable on what I had done and what I was going to do. And I think back to that time it was actually really hard me to to be um, accountable. And I think what it taught me was just that resilience to be accountable and also to be consistent in your actions. And um, yeah, I've really taken that with me for the next 10 years is um, having a weekly action list, having a daily action list, having some goals you want to achieve in the next year, sort of six months in the year, and also some things you want to get rid of and some things you want to do. So
0: I've really used that consistently over the last 10 years. What were some of your challenges back then that you reflect on? I, I distinctly reflect on a few conversations and a few specific challenges, but, but how do you reflect on your business as it was back then?
1: Uh, we, we had a really small business back then. We were limited by cash flow. Um, we were limited by the amount of money I guess we were making as a family personally. Um and, and limited by, I guess, at the time, what I thought was my own capacity. So I was very operational and also had to then start to move in, into some man- managerial role. And I really found that transition really tough. And I think that you helped me with some of that is get, trying to get the balance right between the doing and the managing and the leading. And I think for me, I think that was a lot of what I learned through that time is is actually trying to transition from mainly an operator to uh, moving slowly towards more of a manager and a leader. Because um, at that stage, I probably had 25 team members and that just slowly grew from there. So
0: That transition from being operator through manager to leader, how big a transition has that been for you? Um, obviously, it's it's an ongoing journey, but, but how much do you see that you've changed since then like when you yet the mindset of an operator and we talk about this with our farmers all the time steve Mm -hmm. the mindset of an operator is very different from the mindset of a manager and then the mindset of a leader how much growth and you're an avid learner and you're one of the most open open humans i've ever met to to new insights and new lessons how much learning and growth have you had to go through to move from operator to leader
1: I think I've had to learn most things again, to be honest, to be able to move from where I was to where I am now. And I think back then, um, when I think about, I guess, the people on this podcast is a lot of the time then I fixed I fixed everything myself. I created all the all the rosters and bookkeeping and all those things. I was doing a lot of those things myself and also being a main face in our business. And I actually had to if we wanted our business to continue to grow, I actually had to completely change how I went, to, went about doing things. And that wasn't everything at once, but I sort of had to slowly tick them off. So I guess now I'd say that I'm an operator probably 5 or 10% of the time, and then I'm a, I'm a leader and manager 90%, 90, 90, 95% of the time. And, and that's been a slow journey over the last um, seven years and really accelerated in the last four, I guess, um, to where we are now. So,
0: just to bookend this a little bit, before you got into buying and running small businesses, you were a bank manager and and highly successful as as in the finance sector. And now, in addition to what you do, you're a succession facilitator with Isabel Knight and Proactive. Um, Would you mind speaking to what the change, what inspired the change away from finance and into entrepreneurship?
1: Uh, I think I was lucky. I think one of the things that really promoted change was, I guess I grew up in a family ag business where I was the oldest of five kids. And I think my dad and, and family had always run an ag business and so I'd observed them running their ag business. However, when I finished uni, I went to work for um, a, a guy, I'd say a guy or a com- company, Tim, and he used to import commodities into Australia. And he, he I guess he had a real entrepreneurial uh, streak about him and really, he was great at trying. He was great at um, creating concepts and pictures, and then from that, going, this is what we're going to do. So, I spent um, my first job was actually working with him, helping him develop a few markets and in, in a few um, new commodities and lines that he wanted to do. And I found that really creative of actually going from here's this idea and concept to here here we have a business. And I think that that triggered me. Um, a few years later on when I was working with ANZ and observing other people in business to go, I actually think I can do this too. Um, and I think for me the litmus or the, the trigger of that event happening going from what I was doing to actually being a business owner was um, we moved locations, we moved states completely. So I was in Queensland and we moved um, to the ACT. So um, I had to recreate my life. I had to choose whether I was going to continue doing what I was doing, which was in banking, um, or um to completely change and I guess I decided to completely change I felt I'd learnt 90 to 95 percent of what I could in that profession and um if I was going to change we didn't have any children um we didn't have a lot of commitments and then the time was right to change and I thought that if I failed I could always go back to what I was doing and if I was successful I'd
0: just keep going so yeah how do you reflect on that single decision um because you know Maybe the easy path might have been just to stay in finance and, and keep doing that. How do you reflect on on that choice and, and what's transpired since?
1: Um, well, I think that if you would have asked me four or five years later, I actually would have thought that I possibly would have made more money doing what I was doing um, on a straight sort of in- income or expenses to my family. However, I think that if I looked broader and also what we have been able to achieve making the change was an absolute game changer for our family both my own little family and then also my extended family and I guess um, the um, and I guess the the big change uh, for me was was giving time is I guess if you're fully employed you don't really have the time to do do or think um, in the ways you need to think as an entrepreneur when you're going to buy or build or or, or sell a business. So I think what it gave me was time.
0: Right. and just for everyone's benefit, would you mind just sharing your connection to agriculture and you know your family background, I think, on the Darling is it the Darling Downs? Yeah, so so
1: I guess um my my dad ran a um cropping and beef enterprise uh west of Toomba. So he had a property about half an hour west of Tumba and he had another one about two hours west of Toomba. And I guess I grew up with my uh, mum and dad very much working with them in in their ag business. Um, And then I left and and went to uni and did a bachelor of ag ag science in Brisbane. And I guess at the end of that um, and when I started work, I worked worked out there wasn't enough opportunity for me to come home and return to the family farm. And my brother was also there on the family farm and he was a, he was a great operator. Um, So I guess, in my early twenties, I decided I needed to take a different course of action um, and create my own adventure, and um, that's what I did for a number of years. So, yeah, I guess I guess that's my link. And I was always—I love agriculture. I love um the challenge of it. I love the challenge of the decision making um, in both good and bad times, and I love the um, love the ability that you can, I guess, operate a business and also. an impact on capital so a bit like um you can you can change the value of your land uh by what you do i think it's a remarkable business so i
0: guess that's my title and and looping back you now lead and facilitate succession with proactive for farming families what inspired you to get into that um, given the entrepreneurial trajectory that you've been on
1: um, well, I think one of the things that inspired me was after being in my own business for six or seven years is that I found for myself um, it a bit insular because you're a bit focused on yourself. And I guess what I really valued when I was working um, as a bank manager, the ability to help and support other people, um, either grow their business or or change their business. And I guess proactive for me it just happened. Um, I guess I'd been thinking for for a while, how do I find a role like this where I could help farmers and it could fit into what I do? And for a while, I didn't think that existed. Um, and, and, uh, and I guess proactive found me, if I'm, if, if I'm perfectly honest. And so for me, the thing I value about what I do now is the ability to help people um, have difficult conversations, uh, to speak about their family, which I value a lot, and to speak about their business and to provide to create a plan for the future um and to be candid in my own family and and most other families none of those conversations are are easy there's there's different different things that are that make those conversations very difficult so yeah i I think um i get a lot of value out of seeing families um create a plan and then action them and i think that that's that's the thing that Families get real value from is when they get in and they action some of their actions, and they actually see real change. And I think that's where that's where I get real benefit um, that I actually see them see them change.
0: So, what's been the highlight, Stephen, of your time in that role with proactive and, and supporting sort of many families across Australia? What's been the real highlight for you?
1: Um, I think. I think there's many highlights. I think one of the highlights is that I get to work with high capacity people that run great businesses and I get to to just spend a small part of a small amount of time with them um, in their business. And and I think for me, I also learn from them as well. And I can use those learnings and take them into another business scene that I'm in, both in my own little world and also with other families as well. So I think for me to um to learn from, from great business people is is something that I um, get a lot of value out of personally and also the ability to to use that information and um, experience to share that with other people as
0: well. So. It doesn't surprise me that Isabel and, and that team reached out to you to ask you to step into that facilitation space and I've got no doubt given the commercial mind that you've got and that passion to help people um, that you play a really significant role with those families that you work with, Stephen um, just coming back to your entrepreneurial journey, how do you grow from three businesses to 22, um, or you know, that, that involvement, and a team of of 10 to 150? Would you mind just sort of joining those dots for us and, and let's explore some of the growth steps, some of the key decisions, some of the lessons and some of the challenges that that you've had on that journey?
1: Well, I, I think um, one of the first places I start with many things I do, which which might sound a bit weird, is actually draw a picture. So, um, and I learnt that from a book I read called The Winner's Bible. Is is most people when they're thinking about something just in their head, is they only see certain parts of it. And I guess for me, what I like to do is actually draw pictures um, and stick them to my walls and and use that to actually describe what I'm going to do next. And so I think um, when I think back to the early 2010s is that I did that a lot to help grow my business. So I'd actually draw pictures. I'd say, well, this is where I am now. This is what I want to do next. And then I'd add all the detail underneath that picture is, is what are we doing with this business? Are we buying it? Do we want to buy this, another one of these? Do we want to sell one of the things we have? Because we were very much limited by capital, and so we had to be quite strategic in how we allocated our capital. So all the time, I'd I'd use pictures, and then I'd 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 start with a concept like that, and then I'd get in the detail first. Is I think a lot of people get in the detail first, create the spreadsheet with all the numbers, and they they don't think about the concept. What is the thing you're actually trying to achieve? Is and I think that that's really important is you've got to start with your concept is what is it that you're actually trying to achieve and then secondly, what do the numbers look like and what do the people look like secondary? And I think that's the that's the thing that we had to learn is that is that we can find the people to do what we want to do. We can get the numbers to work in the business to make them work, but if we don't have the right strategy, it's not going to work. And I think for us, for me, when I've I been mean scaling the whole way, it's about trying to do that is is to create a picture and then underneath that, um, then layer that with the numbers and then
0: the people. What did the picture look like? Just give us a sense of practically and actually what what you drew there. Was it was it a vision of the future that you were building towards, or was it something different from that?
1: Um, I think early on it was—it's quite early on. I think my picture was quite small. Um, it's certainly not at what what it is today. But really, it was—is how do we get to in this place in three years' time or two years' time? It wasn't. Um, I think you've got a big big goal. I think you talk about those big goals in in twenty years. Um, I think for me. It was actually about I had one of them, but how do we deal with this next two or three to actually help us march forwards a little bit? Um, And I I think that's how I how I thought about that. And I think the thing that happened for us is when you start scaling a bit, there's things go wrong, and and so what I had to learn is is how do we start managing this thing um, when there's more things going on and more things going wrong? And and I think for us. as we scaled, we learnt that we had to be more consistent with our, I guess in our world, our daily operations and how consistent we were being with, with what we wanted to, people to do in our daily operations checklists um, and being consistent on how how people are doing what we need them to do and how we're training them. And I think for us, we had to do a lot of learning in that space is is how do we create consistency? How do we get, get um, How do we get the operations happening in the way we want them to be? And how do we train people like that to actually get them to
0: where we want to be? So we do talk about that a lot with our members, Stephen, that we need a really big, hairy, audacious, long-term goal. We need to break that back to 10 years and then get really clear on where we need to be and what the business model needs to look like three years from now in order to have a shot at achieving the 10-year goal and then the BHAG. it sounds to me like that that picture that you were creating was a really detailed description of what it was that you were shooting for in the medium term with that longer term vision in view is that a fair comment
1: Yeah it is it is I think um I think in our business where where we've started and where we've finished is actually different like we actually um so I guess we operate predominantly franchise businesses um However, the franchises we've started with are not the not the franchises we're operating now. So I think that we have the when I started we had the goal in mind, we weren't always using the right tools to to get to the goal. So I guess we had to do some of that, is decide we're actually we've got the right system, we don't necessarily we're not necessarily using the right tools, so we actually had to spend some time changing the tools and recreating. Um, and I think that's very diff- very similar to agriculture as well is um sometimes you've got the right system you're not always you don't always have the right livestock or you don't always have the right um crop and i think that that's that to me has a similarity to business is that um you can have seven or eight you can have nine out nine out of ten things going well but if you don't have one of the ten things going well it doesn't always end up going well and i think that's been one of my one of my lessons as well is that don't give up even if you You've still got time. You've always got time in, cha- in front of you to change and to recreate. And I think we've had to do that a few times, and that's the natural course of business. Is nothing's was, going to be the
0: same. That was my next question. How many times have you had to reinvent the business model that you were moving forward with, um, in order to sort of stand the test of time and, and keep growing and keep performing? I distinctly remember that the the three businesses that you had in 2013 aren't the the types of businesses that you've arrived into now. How many times have you had to adapt, innovate, reinvent your approach and your business model over the years?
1: Uh, I I think probably, when I think about it, probably about four times. And, And I think the key things have stayed the same is that we want to be, we have businesses that, we're focused on customers and customer service and also um, businesses that involve team members and building great teams. So I think that hasn't changed. However, the the, the banner out the front or the product we're selling um, has changed. And I think that um, we've had to do that. And if we didn't do it, we probably wouldn't be where we are today. And I think that um, for us, we've had to learn what we're good at. So And and irrespective of the brand or the product that we're dealing with, what are the things that we're good at? And I think we're good at um, building teams and we're good at um, customer service and and working with customers. And I think that's how we've chosen to grow our business. Um, And I think the other thing is for us, when we grow a business, um, we like to understand it. So for me, I'm a practical person um, at heart. And if I can't practically do something or understand it, um I'm not going to choose to do it. so if I can't practically do the things that we're asked to do in that business, I'm actually going to choose not to do it because if I don't understand that, I don't think that I can actually train or empower or get my team to do that as well. So um we like to keep our business pretty simple in that way is so, um, lots of people try and do lots of complex things. I think we're trying to do really simple things and, and do them well so
0: and linking that back to agriculture for me, I think, but giving ourselves time to be very strategic and ask those really intricate questions about our business or farming systems and our business models and being bold enough to crunch the numbers and then adapt. Um, The business model we start with is rarely the business model that we finish with. Um, I like that, that metaphor that I think John Deere started out as a blacksmith. Tiffany's started out as a stationary company and Colgate started out as a soap business and Mm. uh, if they had stayed as those businesses they wouldn't be relevant as major brands today so it's worthwhile our farmers just just taking a moment to to think and I I think what, what about now Stephen with inflation and increasing interest rates and softening commodity prices and for quite a few people they're coming into a tighter season than we've had perhaps how important is it that we have time and space to really ask those questions around the business model that we're a way to move forward with?
1: Um, I think it's critical. Like, I think for us, um, we're going through that at the moment is is we've just sold a business in the last month, literally, and one of those decisions to sell was um, looking at it um, probably late last year going, is this a business that we want to continue Um into the next two or three years? Is it going to provide what we need to provide? Is it going to do what we need to do? And I guess our choice was it wasn't. So in late last year, we started that process of um, selling. We thought we had it sold. Came to, came to February, that contract fell over, and we actually thought we're actually in the position we didn't want to be in, was which was trying to sell this business in uh, 2023. Uh, but we went back to market and did it again. So I think for, for us... Um, we just have to do that every day every month every day and every month is the thing we've got now going to deliver what we needed to deliver uh, this month this quarter this year and the next five years um and i think for us uh everything is actually for sale and, and i think that's a bit different in agriculture is that if you've got a family farm that you've had for five generations that piece of land's not for sale however I think sometimes you're still going to have that critical thinking is is what do we need to choose to do to make this work so we can stay here for another couple of generations? And and I guess that's the way I like to think about it is is what do I need to do now to make sure I have this business in five years' time and it's bigger than what we have now um, because I need to bold, be bold enough to make those decisions. If something needs to go, it actually needs to go.
0: Coming from a leadership perspective, have there ever been moments where you've felt like you're procrastinating around some of those decisions? And, and what do you do so that you can be decisive when there is a, a key decision like that to be made? Very good question, Jeremy. Or are you or, or are you not an indecisive person? I think a lot of our members, because of the role that they carry with that family asset, if you like, and and the fact that maybe the land isn't in their minds for sale and so they've got to work out how to adapt the business model. I, I can imagine that quite a few of our listeners struggle with procrastination around some of those key decisions. Is that Has that ever been an issue for you or do you not find that you are indecisive by nature? Uh, I, think it, I think everyone is slightly indecisive. I'm still a little bit
1: indecisive. I think how we think about what we're going to do next is is we try and do it in a small way, is we we don't stop what we're doing and then start the next thing. Is I think how we like to do it is we want to dip our toe in the water now and 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 have a go at a new business and go, can we get this thing to work? Does it work? And can we replicate it? And that's how we like to do it. So I think the same for a agribusiness um, is it is it how do you allocate five percent of your turnover to this next thing you want to do. And allocate a tiny little couple piece of capital to say, let's give that a go. Does that work? And if it does work, let's do a do a bit more of it. And I think that's actually um, I have a couple of business partners in my in my group. Like I, I work with other people, and I think that's how we like to do things. Is we actually like to allocate a little bit of time, a little bit of energy, and a little bit of capital to say, is this going to work, and does it work, and then go from there. Because I think one of the worst things is. To stop what you're doing now and start the next thing presuming it's going to be better when actually it's not better, it's the same or worse. And I think that's a real challenge in business is actually to look over the fence and presume the next thing's better. Um is it it could be, but it may not be. And I think that's the way we like to think about how we're going to do the next thing next.
0: It's a clever way to de-risk the decision is to make it a stage and an organic transition, perhaps.
1: Mm. And I think that um I remember you took me actually to a, um, something in Melbourne where Brad Sugars spoke. He was an international business coach and, and something I took away from that um, I've never forgotten. He talked about that you never sell your business until you know what you're going to do next. And I guess um, that thinking is the same about how we think about our business is we're not going to sell all of our businesses in one go to suddenly go to a shiny new thing. We're actually going to make sure the shiny new thing is shiny and then try and allocate more capital that way. And I think about the same in agriculture, is that something might look really shiny, but don't stop completely what you're doing now. Just get, dip your toe in the water. Does it work? Then do a little bit more of it.
0: I think so often humans can be wired for drama and trauma. And you know, often when we think that we need to make a change because what we're doing is not working. We, we aim for the 180-degree change, whereas... Normally, it's a three to five percent correction rather than a, com- a complete sort of about face, isn't it?
1: Mm, completely.
0: So, one of the things that really impresses me about you, Steve, is the way in which the culture you are able to create, irrespective of which franchise system you choose to invest in, um, what you do differently with your teams to drive culture and drive results. I think it's quite unique. Um, When you arrive, I think for our listeners, a lot of them are struggling with the concept of building out an on-farm team. Um, And maybe we are in that mindset often of being the the on-farm operator and, you know, the notion of of building out systems and structures and then recruiting on-farm to build out a team so that our business, our farms can work for us more effectively. Is something that a lot of people struggle with. How do you, when you arrive into a, a new business and let's say it's an underperforming team, what are some of the things that have really worked for you to take that team from where it is to transition into a new culture to become more high performing and then to build out a stable team to support each of your businesses?
1: Mm. I guess probably an example I can give is we bought. Two businesses in May last year, and we took over an existing team. And they they weren't um, a big team; it was probably only five or six of them. Um, and I guess the first thing we do is we set the expectations. Is the first thing we do is is talk about what we're aiming, what we're looking, what we're aiming for as a business, um, what we we expect of that business, both in terms of culture and um, operations. And then I guess we we begin we begin by presuming. They're actually going to do that, so I guess that's where we start. We actually presume and give people um, the benefit of the doubt that they can do this, and I, and I think that um, when we bought those two businesses, that's where we started. I guess the reality was in three months' time, we we actually had new leaders um, in that completely new team in that business in three months' time, because what had happened was. Um, both the team members working there knew that we weren't going to change our standard and we actually expected expected a certain level of um, of expectation from them, which wasn't unreasonable. It was just reasonable, and we weren't going to change that expectation. We are going to continue to talk about the same things. Um, and I guess when we're changing a team, uh, what we're looking for is people with talent, not people with skills, people with talent. And I guess that's something I talked to my dad about. Um, He goes, well, these guys can't do these things um, in ag. And I think that is a constant. It is a real challenge is how do we find skilled people. I guess in our business, we're not looking for skilled people. We're just looking for people who want to give things a go, um, have the right talent. So what I mean by that is that they actually just want to give it a go and they've got a real reason for giving it a go. And we're actually going to teach them and train them the rest. And and I guess we find that if we find the right talent, we get the right result. And does things happen perfectly? No, to begin with. But do we get there and do we have an overperforming business? The answer is yes. So
0: that adage, hire on attitude, train on skill, is that what you're getting at there? The, The talent is about their mindset, their attitude, their desire to do their best. Um, and then you can train them on the skill. Is that what you're suggesting? Completely. Completely. So to what degree do you think that's relevant in agriculture? I, I think this is really interesting because often when we recruit that farmhand or that junior farm manager or that operations manager, we look for someone with 10 or 12 or 15 years of on-farm experience. Across our membership, we see people grabbing tradesmen out of town and we've got a landscape gardener working as our key person on our farm um hire on attitude train on skill do you think that's equally relevant in agriculture or do you think it's different
1: i think it's equally relevant i think the skills you have i think in agri- skills to work in agriculture you need to have broad skills but i think the biggest thing you need is the right attitude because actually if you want someone to be there for a, a year two years three years if they've got the right attitude they're going to be there if they've never got the right attitude, they're actually going to pick up a job and go to work somewhere else for more money. And I guess we've got we've got the same challenges in our industries we work with. They are not the highest paying industries. Is people need to choose to work with us, and we want them to choose. Um, but if they want to find more money, they're going to find it somewhere else, and that's that's just the reality of the industry we're working. And I guess um, what we find if, if we if we employ people based on their talent and their desire and we train and equip them and we empower them um, and we try and make a real difference in their life, that they're actually going to stay longer. And that's what we care about is actually building long-term relationships um, with people that are going in the same direction we are. So, and I'd say that in most cases now, that especially into our fitness business, the people we employ actually haven't got previous experience. And if they have, uh, we're less likely to, in- to interview them.
0: Um just fact. So. so for me, that opens up a whole new thought process, hopefully, for our listeners. Often in farming, we think that it's really hard to find good people, Um, you know, they're just not out here, they're not in our town, they're not in our region. Um, If we open our mind to, you know, finding someone with great talent, good mindset, good attitude, and we open our mind to recruiting from out of town or out of metro cities or even overseas, is there actually a shortage of potential employees for farm families?
1: I think people have to be open (laughs) To trying to give things a new trying to give things a go in a new way. And I guess over over our experience in business we've had to do that too um, in our talent pool is that um, I think we started our business looking for people who had skills and we've just continually evolved that over time to where we are now. Um, and, and I guess uh, in our food business we we employ lots of people that weren't born in Australia. Is that they've they've made it to Australia, they're studying, they want to change their future and and they want to make their way. And I guess what I've learned is that there are some amazing people wanting to wanting to make start an amazing adventure in Australia, and all they need is some is some support and care. And I guess that's that's what we try and do in our food business is that we, we actually try and understand what, what what's happening in someone else's world, um, and we encourage them in their world because they're not going to work with us forever. And by doing that, we create wonderful loyalty. And I guess, um, I guess I'd say to anyone um, who's thinking about recruiting people is that sometimes you can find some wonderful staff members. Uh, from new places you've never you've never considered before, and and to be honest, we've had lots of failures too. Don't get me wrong, we have lots of failures. However, um, the blessing of ha- finding some great ones um, from a different pond that you haven't gone fishing in before, from our experience, is wonderful.
0: Just to that point, Stephen, how well structured is your recruitment process, and how? creative and far-reaching is your search campaign for talent. I think so many small businesses I've worked with and so many farmers, they don't have a recruitment system and the the strength of how they search is not there. So, you know, we're big on this. If you want to find talent, we get the results we deserve. And if you've got a really thoughtful um, recruitment process and a really creative search um, front end to that. That you're going to give yourself the best chance of finding that talent from those um, far ponds, far afield. How? What does yours look like, and how creative is your search at the front end?
1: Um, well, well, I think that we try and be creative in how we write things. Is if if you're solely talking about what, what you're doing and what you're responsible for um, that's probably the same as most other job ads is I think you need to encompass in especially for young people is what they're going to learn what environment are they going going to be in who are they going to be hanging out with and what what are the other things that are are beyond just the actions is what are the things you're going to feel? What are the things you're going to value, or what are the things you're going to learn, and what are the things you can do next? And I think if you're writing write write something compelling like that, you've got the better you've got more chance than most of getting more applicants. Um, and I think the other thing is that that things are now visual. Is if you can add a QR code or something to your job ad that can get people to photos or something something of your farm or experience, smiling faces it's a big step forwards because young people now, they actually, most of their world is visual, video, photos, is just having a job out that's written actually isn't that compelling. Is what they want to see is actually some photos,
0: some fences, yeah, some
1: cattle, some horticulture. Like, that's so
0: compelling. And we've seen some really um compelling farm videos mm. that that tell the farm story and create that on-farm opportunity through video, which is another really key asset. And then that video can land in so many um, lateral and perhaps unlikely um, locations so that you do sort of deepen and, and strengthen your search effort. So coming back, you say you set expectations with those teams as one of your first things. How important is it to have a clear set of values a clear set of standards and a clear set of expectations when you arrive to a team? And what would you say to, you know, a a farm team that hasn't committed some of those things to writing or put them on paper?
1: Um, I think where I'd start is if you've got a small team and everything is verbal, is that your new team member doesn't know what you already know is that if you had a small team and you've been working in a team of one, two or three people, is you've got 20 or 30 years of history of how you've gone to do things and why you've gone to do it. And the new team members just turning up with, with none of that background, is, is what you're asking of them is suddenly to try and learn what you've learned in 20 years. And I think what for me, what the what the values or what the, what the dot points you write down is actually to help you stop rather than the action, the next action you've got to go either to the fence or the cattle yards or the water trough, is actually to stop and talk about your values and why you do something in a certain way um, rather than just expect that they know. Because I think that so many people come from, I guess that's what I've learned from succession planning, it's not my job to judge how another family works because every family works differently. And because of that, how people enter your workforce is very different because everyone's family setting they grew up in is very different. What you're asking them to do when you're joining a small family business is actually to bring on some of the views and the perspectives of the way your family sees this ag business. And the only way they're going to do that is actually with time and you dedicate time and you dedicate a resource to say, well, this is how we see it and this is why we see it. And I think that that actually helps you weed out the wheat from the chaff, is when you spend that time and you set the expectations, it's very easy to see within a couple of weeks whether that person's actually um, the right person for that role or whether they're not. And if they're not, that's probably, and you have those conversations a couple of times, it's not going to change. So, hmm.
0: And when you do that piece, you come in and just clarify expectations and set the standards. It's a bit a little bit a little bit like wanting to take a three star hotel and say, "Hey guys, we're now five stars." Is it likely that all team members will lift, or is it likely that you might not get everyone to come along for the ride? And is that okay?
1: Well, I think when we take over a new business, um, our, our gut feel. Is that probably seventy-five percent of people won't come along with the journey, and I guess that's what we've learned Is that uh, our job is to not change from from the course we're going down. Is we're going to set a standards. We're set a set of standards. We're going to live by those standards, and our hope is that the people rise and they get to that get to that level. Um, I think for us, is having the right team is far more important than the business we've got underneath it. So if we don't feel we've got the right team, we just change it because we just understand how much impact that has on our our business and and what it delivers to our
0: bottom line. So um, have I answered that for you, Jeremy? Yeah, absolutely. What would you say to a farming family that might have a small team that now want to sit down and set down their values, their standards and their expectations and then, you know, communicate that back to their small on-farm team knowing that maybe one or two or three of the team might not come along for the ride? Would would your advice be to do it anyway?
1: I think it would. It's taken me a long time to answer that, but I think I would. Uh, because I think that I go back to the picture. If you want to create a picture of where you want to be in two or three years' time, and you're actually compelled by that picture, and that involves doing some things now, is that by not doing them now means you're not going to get to your picture. So I guess for us, um, we we know where the, what that picture uh, needs to be in three years time. And then if it's going if it's not going to happen with the team you've got, you've either got to choose: do you not get your picture, or do you do you at some point change your team? And and I think that's hard. Like we've got team members that work for us that are imperfect, and we're in the process of changing. It doesn't mean that they finish tomorrow, but it means that we've got a journey in a direction we're going going towards and we know the direction we want to go in.
0: So, Steve, we've talked about the importance of standards and expectations and being really clear on that, and you've also talked about that mindset of of hiring talent rather than skill um, and being really creative in your search for that talent. In addition, when you arrive to... An average team and you want to move that to being high performing and, and really nurturing a high quality culture what are a couple of other things that you do
1: i think i think for us um young people need to feel like they're moving forwards they actually feel like they need to move they need to feel that they're moving to something and i guess for us um i guess it's not like it was 30 years ago that someone's going to have, have a job and be there for 10 or 15 years they're more likely to have a job, and that's what we find. They'll have a the job for a period of time and then move on. And, and I guess for us, the thing that we do to try and keep people with us longer is we almost set them up on a mini mini career path, is they might start with us as a team member, let's say, in our food business, and then we've got a couple of steps we can actually take them along the way. They can be a supervisor, they can manage a shift, then they could be an assistant manager, then they could be a store manager, and then... Ultimately, they could be an area manager looking after a number of stores. And, and I feel like for, from our perspective, uh, if people feel like they've got a journey or something they can move along and they can learn, learn along the way, they're actually more likely to stay with you. And I think that if, if you're getting people that are managers or area managers in, in our little world, is that what we honestly and candidly do is we give them the opportunity to, to be involved with our business. And because I guess that we we feel that um, for us um, great people deserve to be rewarded and actually will say that let's 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 open and build a business together. And that's been part of our model is trying to find great people doing it together and replicating. Um, and for us, giving people the compelling um, vision that they could actually do this for themselves, they could run their own business with someone else who's already run a business and grow is really compelling. And, and I guess we, we've done that a couple of times and and the results are, are wonderful for both people. So,
0: Thank you for saying that. We talk a lot about that a great way to retain talent is to have a bigger vision for them than perhaps they have for themselves. And for me, that's exactly what you've spoken to. So you might have a young person come into your business, Steve, and if they're the right sort of person that fits your leadership team, You work with them for a few years and grow them potentially even to have an interest in a franchise with you for themselves. Um, Having a career path for our employees is just so important. Um, If you don't have a ladder for them to climb, they're going to find another ladder to climb, aren't they? So um, by giving them that, yeah, I can see why people would stay. You also mentioned in your comments before, that you want to make a difference in their lives, that you support and care for your people and that you engage in their world, I think were terms you use. So um, how intimate is your leadership team's knowledge of those individuals that you, you know are building up potentially to become business partners with you in time? How, how well do you know them? How um, much do you demonstrate you care for them? And, and what would your comment be around um, the importance of really getting to know them.
1: I think the answer of all of that to me is is so critical to our business. I feel that if you ultimately care for the people that, that work for your business and in your business, that they'll ultimately care for you and your business. Um, and I guess some for us, some practical things for us, some of our managers now aren't, um, they weren't born in Australia they don't have any family here and for us we are some of their family so I guess for us to actually be involved with their lives and share some of their critical things um like that that announced like practically in the last three weeks I've had an announcement that someone one of our team members is having a baby um and they probably announced that on within the same couple days as telling their family so and not even telling their friends in Australia so so I guess for us um being involved with people's lives is so important because I guess um, when I thought about coming onto this show, uh, this podcast is that I feel like that's where we get ultimate benefit is by us understanding their world and helping them is they also understand a bit of it about our world. And I think actually combining both of those things together is actually what values, what I get out of business is actually seeing people as people move forwards and um, I guess our motto is that our job is to actually move them further forwards. And if we can move them further forwards and go in a career path in their direction that, that they want to go in, and we can encourage that, that's great. But if we can teach them how to run their own business and they go and do it by themselves, that's great. But if they go into business with us, that's great as well, is that we actually want to promote all three options. Is, is We don't see that people are going to work for us forever. They're probably going to work for us for anywhere from one to, one to four years. But actually, out at the end of that, we want them to do all of those three things I just talked about,
0: and we want to support them to do it. How much of your success has been building up and backing and then partnering with your existing team? Probably a,
1: probably a third of our third of our success has been based on that. Yeah. and I think that it'll grow from here.
0: So how often in your journey in agriculture, Have you seen farming businesses actually do similar with their employed team? I haven't seen it very common.
1: It has happened. I've seen a couple of occasions, but it's not very common.
0: Hmm. We've got a few examples within our alumni. Um, And if you're listening, you'll know who you are. I won't mention specific names, but... A couple of our stories are well-known where um, they've created the opportunity for their farm manager to take equity in the business that runs the farm and, you know, creating real opportunity for um, loyal, engaged, high-quality senior members of farm teams to get that same opportunity in agriculture. Do you think, Stephen, that there's a greater opportunity for farming families to learn about that from small business land perhaps, where it's done quite regularly. Often we're giving equity away to key team members as a way of helping them have their own entrepreneurial journey. For me, in accounting firms, law firms, um, physiotherapy practices, in franchises like yours, it's commonplace. Do you think we can learn a bit as farming families around that and and perhaps create similar opportunities for key farm teams?
1: I think there's certainly um, lots of ways to create um, business relationships with your employees. Um, and I guess for us, that's critical to grow our business is for some people, they might feel like they're giving away a little bit early. I guess we look at it to say, well, what can we do over 10 years? And if we share some of this pie now, what will that pie look like in 10 years time? And and I think that um, it doesn't mean you've got to give away part of your current pie, it could be that you actually create a new pie and you try and grow that pie. And I think there's lots of ways to be creative in that, is that for us it's about creating a new pie and growing that pie bigger and doing that with 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 great team members. And I think um, when you think about lots of people who have got their family farm, that they've already had this family farm for a long time, is it's not necessarily easy to suddenly share in the operating business but it might be really easy to create another business off to the side, whether it's through leasing or whether it's through machinery or a new block, that they actually can do that with other people um, and quality team members. And I think that uh, when people have the opportunity to do that is that they also lift. Is they might have been at 100% before, they'll be at 120% next because they actually have been given an opportunity they would have never been able to get to themselves or it would have taken them 15 years. And And I guess for us, that's the... That's leveraging for us is we get to bring time forwards with some people. They get to do something they wouldn't have been able to do um, for another 10 years, and they're doing it now. And it just, there's so much empowerment in that. And also that the other thing is that when people enter into business with other people they actually feel more confident, if you're a new entrant, it's actually not, it's actually pretty daunting to start your own business by yourself. Yeah, when, when you're entering it with someone who's actually done, been doing it for 10 years they're actually far more confident as well in their decisions. They've got someone to talk to, um, got someone to share that experience with, and, and from, from, from my perspective, I'd really think about how you could make something like that work.
0: So if I've got a young son or daughter coming through, should it be any different for a family member in the next generation, or could similar commercial, entrepreneurial business partnerships be struck between generations of the same family should it be any different uh
1: no i don't think so jeremy i, I think that um i think i always think about that you've got to be um, a good doer you've got to do the right things um, you've got to be the right person to have the right have the right to own the own, own the own the right business is it if you've got someone who's daily they're doing the right things, is that if you can actually get them to practice that in a business business relationship, even if it's only a little business, is you get to see them do that in a little way. Is the best way for someone to grow their entrepreneurial skills, their business skills, is actually to do it in a little way and be able to learn how to make decisions themselves at a younger age and get some right and get some wrong. Is that's actually the best way for them to learn and. Like I've made countless poor decisions over my time, but the only way I've been able to grow is actually the freedom to make them. And and I think that that, that's something that I think that is that the earlier someone can get on that business journey to actually learn how to to make their own decisions and and what works and what doesn't, it actually sets the future up so much better because they've actually had five or ten years of practice first before getting part of a Operating part of a bigger pie.
0: So, Stephen, really insightful comments um, around creating a high performing team. You haven't just created one high performing team, you've got multiple running across multiple businesses, and you've been through a fairly significant scale up journey like 150 plus team members. Um, How do you? achieve that over time and and what are some of your reflections around building out multiple high performing teams and scaling up? and what are your what are your reflections over the last ten years of you as you've gone about that?
1: I think one of my reflections is um, you've got to be committed to your vision, is that if you create the vision and you put it up there, you've got to be committed to actioning it. And I think that that's something that we we did is we actually said we wanted to do this. We wanted to grow our business. We wanted to have a number of locations. And I think that there's many things along the way that are signposts to say that you should stop. And I think that we've had no shortage of them in our business to say, well, this is hard. This is 300 Ks away. Oh, this business isn't going well. And I think that... Um, Beyond all of that, you need to commit, be committed to your goal. And I think for us, that's that's what something I'm good at, is looking at that long-term to say, well, where do we want to be in this long-term? And then bringing that back to the short-term to what, I, what do I need to do now or what do I need to put up with or what do we need to um, tolerate in order for that to happen? And I guess for us, that's something I've just had to become used to doing is... Is if we want to grow our team it's going to get bigger is that to begin with the team members aren't going to be perfect we've just got to tolerate that and our job is to sand them and refine them create them into diamonds and if they don't work to find new ones. and i guess um irrespective of what's happened on our journey is that we've always been focused on the things the next thing we want to do to grow our business And what we haven't done is allow our circumstances to get in the way of stopping that from happening. Whether that's a cash flow challenge, whether it's a people challenge, a capital challenge, a timing challenge, um, is that I guess we are committed to rolling out our path and our journey, and we're just going to do it. And and I guess for us, uh, for me, that's mindset, is, is we've just got an unwavering commitment to say, we are doing this on this date, and we're just going to make it happen. If we need to find twenty-five team members on that date to happen, we're just going to do it. And even if even if ten of them aren't right, we are going to have to start, and then find the right ones next. And and I guess for us that that's been a taught thing. That hasn't happened straight away. Um, is that I would have been very nervous about that ten years ago. However, where we are now. Uh, we have so much more confidence because we've actually done it now so many times. But I think for me, that's that's my perspective, is that we don't let our circumstances get in the, ro- the way of what we're to do next. We've already set that vision and when to do that.
0: Don't let your circumstances get in the way of staying true to your vision. What a what a compelling for me that's really timely, I think, for so many in the current climate. So thank you for that. What a great insight. Have you heard of the Stockdale paradox, Stephen? No, I haven't. We talked about this at our last conference and humour me for a moment, guys, but Stockdale um, was a, I think he was a sergeant in the war and survived years in the concentration camp. And he, said he his key takeaway that's now quite a key um, and well-known business principle um, Jim Collins talks about this in Good to Great. Um, have unwavering belief that you will prevail against all odds, but at the same time have the courage to face the brutal facts of your current reality. Um, and that was it. He he survived the concentration camp because he had unwavering faith that he would prevail, but he was also willing to face the brutal facts in the here and now, and you talk about big pitch, having big picture view, but also being able to focus in the here and now around the small detail and make really important decisions in the here and now. That is sort of coined the Stockdale paradox. Um, And they say that it's a really significant trait of a high performing leader is that you've got both those abilities. It's a really nice piece, but just came to mind as you were speaking to that, that you've got to be completely committed, be willing to persist, but um, also be able to face the brutal facts and, and deal with the short, the immediate day circumstances. So, great comments, Stephen. Thank you. I think it's great. Um, No doubt, in a customer service oriented business and in hospitality, that there's probably not much over the years that you and your team haven't seen. I can only imagine just how many customer service, um, supply, other challenges you've faced. What have been some of the obstacles that you've had to overcome and persist through on that journey?
1: Uh, so, I wrote a bit of a list before we came on today, and you know, I think everyone faces challenges. I guess for us, we've had um, two businesses have cars drive straight through the front of them and they completely smash our business parts. So that's happened twice. We've had people steal from us on multiple times um, and decent amounts of money and um, we've had people steal from our business we've had p- things broken on purpose maliciously obviously we deal with a lot of customer complaints um, we had someone stuck car stolen from our business a month ago um, i think for us when you're dealing with people um there's always going to be things go wrong, whether that's from a customer service perspective or even team members within our business. And, and I guess um I guess our perspective now is things are going to go wrong. It's not that they shouldn't. They actually are going to go wrong. And it's actually how do we deal with them when they do go wrong? Um, and I think that's hard to actually get to that mindset, is is often people have the mindset is, oh, why did that go wrong? I think we start that. Um, things are going to go wrong, and that's just natural natural course of events. And our job is actually to go well. What are we going to do about that next? Is what do we do when it does go wrong, and what are we going to do next?
0: So, a great comment. Thank you. Now, just to round this out, I'm mindful of time and, um, mm. thing to sort of start to wrap this up. Talk to me about pecans. I think you had a sort of idea, and you wanted to get back into agriculture. Um, would you mind just telling me a bit about the pecan story and where that's arriving you to um, over the last couple of years?
1: Well, a, few, a number of years ago, I felt like I could afford to have a small farm, but not necessarily, I never had an aspiration to have a big farm. So I guess I don't see myself as a broad, broadacre cropper or um, having a capital station or any of those things. But what I felt like I had and what I enjoy is being able to create things and start them, start from a small concept and grow that into a big concept. And I guess for me, um, uh, about five years ago when I went through my own family succession, that was something that really stuck to me is I actually wanted to be involved with agriculture. And so um, I had this idea that I wanted to create um, a pecan orchard and one of the coaches I had at the time um, said to me that, well, if you want to start, start. And I had no farm. It takes three years to grow grow them in a the nursery. And he just literally said, if you if you order them and start paying for them, you'll make this happen. And so I guess that's what I that's what we we agreed I was going to start doing. So um I started doing that a couple of years ago out of my cash flow. And out of that journey, I guess I worked out that also um how am I going to do this? And along that journey, um, I met my now business partners that were also on a different journey and they had a different picture, so they were in a dairy business and they were going, well, how do we have our own land? How do we have our own future when they were um, new to ag with, with no family backing? Um, and I guess uh, Michael and Ash and I um, and my family, we joined our pictures together um, and we said, well, how can we do this together? So we've been a year and a half into a joint venture where um we're now running a dairy business. We're about to plant our first trees um, in a month's time and we're going to start that journey together. And, and I guess that's all about um, partnering and bringing skills and, and about drawing those pictures together to how do we do this together. Um, and I think there's lots of challenges when you're in business together, but there's also lots of joys um, and we're looking forward to, to running this race together for the next 20 years.
0: So what's your view on partnerships and even farm business partnerships Uh, i guess
1: my my personal view is and 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 i've got the personality for this is i'd rather do something together rather than do it by myself because i guess i i now have learned that i only have a certain amount of skills and actually if you want to grow a big business you need lots of skills and and i think to have the best skills um you bring people into your business with those skills, and you grow together. So I guess we've um, we've had that mindset for more than ten years now, and and that's uh, one of the one of the aspects of growing our business is how do we find great people with great skills we don't have, and um, creating a picture and doing it together. So very excited about my return to ag
0: really exciting and and well done for doing it as part of a partnership. I think the model with which you've expanded outside of agriculture, Stephen, it's proven, so I've got no doubt that you'll make a go of it inside of agriculture. And um, great to know that you're you're leaning back in and not just supporting farming families through succession facilitation, but you're also having a crack again in agriculture. Well done. Thanks, Jeremy. Now, um, I hope we've in some small way done your backstory a bit of justice. It's been incredibly insightful to, to reflect with you on that journey and, and to share some of the insights um, that have come from from your success over that time. Just for our farmer listeners, what um, what would be your sort of final reflection on um, moving from free businesses to your sort of significant team now of 150 plus people, um, plus Sort of a farming interest what, what's your key reflection or your key takeaway or, or that key message that you'd like to um to leave our listeners with uh,
1: i think for us to be open to opportunity um i guess we knew what we wanted to create we didn't know how we we're going to create it and i guess we're, we've just said yes to lots of opportunities and we've said that yes with other people and for us um, that's allowed us to grow something that's quite significant, and, and and I guess for me that was that was part of my solution. Is is there was lots of people that told me don't go into business with someone else. Um, however, we had this core belief that doing things together you'd go further, and I guess that I feel like now if I look back on time, that's been the story of our journey. Um, let's do things together. Let's bring combined skills and let's go faster. And, and I guess for anyone in agriculture, I think that is a real challenge. Based on on history, is lots of people haven't done that. And I think the um, the question is 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 how much faster can you go if you do it together with someone else, if you've got a similar vision, a similar attitude, and a similar similar dream.
0: Perfect, mate. Hey, um, it was great to meet you back in two thousand and thirteen, and or two thousand and ten. Sorry, thirteen years ago, and. You know, when I reflect back then on our time together, it just does not surprise me in the slightest that you've achieved what you've achieved, um, that you lead from the place that you lead from and that you've enrolled and assembled such a significant team and business over that time. Um, of all of my clients over these those years, you know, there's a short list of those that are just incredibly impressive and you're certainly one of them. Steve, thanks so much for your time, mate. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jeremy. And there you have it, ladies and gents. An hour with Stephen Murchison. Um, quite a private and humble character. Um, but as I said right at the start, I love sharing stories that we might not otherwise hear. Often we, you know, we interview and learn from celebrities. But I think equally, there's just so much we can learn from impressive leaders like Steve. Um, for me, his level of commitment to a picture in the future that he created a, a business of nailing and refining his business model, persisting through just multitudes of obstacles and challenges, um, and then some really compelling insights on how to attract and retain talent, um, set expectations and standards and raise those with team, and then how to scale And build out a team that can support a significantly scaled project. Um, The value of backing people and partnering with people um, as a model around which to grow, I just think so much of that is relevant in agriculture. And, you know, I hope in the insights shared with Steve just then that you found something incredibly insightful. Just in closing, I asked him how he makes decisions. And he stopped and thought about it and he said that he looks at business a bit like a Rubik's Cube and that most people just want to focus on their favorite side of the Rubik's Cube but he loves taking time when he's looking at a decision or a problem to look at it for look to look at each side of that business Rubik's Cube um, and he reckons there's four sides that he looks at the first one is the practical side so he looks at a problem from a practical standpoint then he looks at it from an entrepreneurial standpoint, and then he looks at it from a scientific standpoint or a research-based standpoint, and then he looks at it from a capital and a capital allocation standpoint. And I thought what an insightful um, note on which to finish, that when we're facing a problem, we've got to make a decision. As farmers, often we only look at it from the practical standpoint, um, but you know, to look at it from the practical, the scientific, the capital, and then the entrepreneurial standpoint, I think is a really nice perspective around which to interrogate problems, decisions, business model changes, growth opportunities, and all those things. So I hope you found that as um, enjoyable as I have. Thanks again, everyone, for being such um, committed participants and listeners and followers of this podcast. it means the world to, to me and to our team. And, Steve, thank you, mate, um, as always, for um, sharing your insights um, that have underpinned your success. Take care, everyone. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Profitable Farmer podcast by Farm Owners Academy. If you're new to this show, be sure to follow us. If you've been a long-time listener, let your friends know about us or come continue the conversation in the Profitable Farmer Facebook group. All the best as you grow your business and create your freedom farm. Until next time, keep being incredible.